working our way through the book of John. You know, over the past couple of years, COVID has done something to jobs. And uh, one of the things that it's caused is that people aren't working. So employers are coming up with this idea that, you know what, we need to offer more benefits. Um, we, we need, uh, hey, we'll, we'll give you a sign-on bonus. I never, ever got a sign-on bonus with any job I ever took. I mean, people, the jobs are offering $5,000, $10,000. Just come and work for us. They're offering immediate health insurance. They're offering great, you know, um, vacation, sick time, personal time. You know, I mean, jobs with a great, when you get a job with great benefits, how many you know that's a great deal? Okay, sometimes you even get jobs where they'll, they'll throw in their, like, you know, gym memberships and, and restaurant stuff. I mean, th those are really good benefits. Well, today I want to look at, in John chapter 1, uh, verses 14 through 18, there are some benefits of Jesus' humanity that when Jesus... God becomes flesh, uh, he brought some benefits with that. And so today I want to look at five benefits because of Jesus' humanity. And here's the first one. So I would encourage you, take notes, write these down on your outlines. But here's the first thing, uh, benefit about Jesus' humanity, and it's this. Jesus' humanity enabled him to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus' humanity enabled him to sympathize with our weaknesses. So starting there in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word. Now, we need to recall the very first message in this study of John of verse 1. All right? Verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, that word, we keep seeing this, the word, the word, the word. And if you recall, I said that word was Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, okay? Um, that, that the word was actually the name of Jesus before he was named Jesus, all right? Um, he was, the word was named Jesus after he became flesh. But when he, before he was flesh, he was, he was the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead. He was, he was God the Son, Completely God, but yet separate. All right? Remember that first message? And I, 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 I nailed that nail. All right? Hit that hit nail. And, and the word, Jesus now. And so now he's saying, okay, this word, this, this eternal word, this, this, this word, this person who existed for all time, who, who wasn't created but was the creator, this word has now become flesh. Okay, this is the Christmas message. All right, this is this is Isaiah chapter seven that it says, "And a virgin shall give birth to a son, and you he will be called what name? Negative Emmanuel." <laughs> I knew I'd trip somebody up, and it was my wife. You will call him Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel stand for? God with us. God with us. Okay. Here's, now, again, as, as we have looked at John chapter 1, 
There are some things about John chapter 1, if you recall, that um, anybody other than me have had some brain farts. I mean, you just like blew a fuse because the teaching is so deep, our little mind can't grasp it. Okay? Well, guess what? This is another thing I don't think you and I truly can grasp. God as man. Completely man, yet completely God. Okay? His humanity did not overrun and overtake and overpower his divinity. And his divinity did not overrun and overpower his humanity. Both in one body, existing together. How does that happen? I have no idea. But it did. Okay? So we have God in the flesh. Now, when it says that he became flesh, it doesn't mean that, that God just put on like a body and, and continue to be God and just do it. No, no, it means that he took on everything that you and I have in humanity. Every aspect of what it means to be a human, Jesus was it, okay? Jesus was, he understood what it meant to be a crying baby. He understood what it meant to be a growing toddler, he understood to, what it meant to be a tweener and a, twin, and, and a teen. He understood what it meant to be a, a, an adolescent. Get that in your mind for a moment. Jesus was a teenage boy at one time, all right? And can I tell you, and we're, as we're going to see here in a few moments, um, he did not float around with this halo as a teenage boy. He was a teenage boy. He understood what it meant to be a young adult. Okay, here's the thing. He understood what it meant to hunger and to thirst. He understood what it meant to get tired and grow weary. He understood what it meant to have people stab him in the back. He understood what it meant to be lied about and betrayed. He understood what it meant to have people say things about you that wasn't true. He knew what it was to experience physical pain and physical death. Everything that you and I go through, Jesus had. He had it. Complete humanity. Now here's the one part, one benefit of Jesus' humanity that really benefits you and me. And it's this. Jesus understood temptation. Completely. Because if you, in the Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That word weakness means um, it refers to both moral and physical, um, anything that is moral or physical that would predispose you to sin, okay? So anything physical, anything moral, anything that could, is going to be out there that will cause you to sin, Jesus could sympathize with that. Why? And it says, but um, we have this high priest who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, but did not sin. You see, Jesus, the, the, the one thing that Jesus had that we didn't have was he never sinned, okay? But here's the thing. Because he was without sin doesn't mean he wasn't without temptation. He was tempted in every way you and I are. Go back to the teenage boy for a second. 
Think about that for a minute. Any guys, think back when you were a teenage boy. Did you face temptation? Nope, not me. I've never faced temptation as a 14, 15, 16-year-old. Not me. No. Every teenage boy faces temptation. So Jesus, he did not just become born and then automatically become 33 or 30. He was born and he went 1, 2, 3, 4, 15, 16, 17, 18. Tempted in every way as we are. In fact, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 18 says this. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He was able to help those who are being tempted. The word suffer means to agonize, to feel the distress, to feel the weight. Okay? Think about that. Jesus is going through life and he suffered. Now, when we think about the word suffer, we're thinking what? The cross. That's not what that says. He suffered when? Tempted. Think about that. He agonized. He, he felt the weight of the temptation on him. Okay? He felt the weight to get. Guess what? He was tempted to lust. He was tempted to be greedy. He was tempted to, to, to be envious. He was tempted to be prideful. He was tempted in every way that you and I are. So whatever your temptation is, Jesus was tempted. In every single way. But was without sin. You see, the benefit of Jesus being tempted, again, Hebrews 4.15, he is a high priest who is unable to sympathize. We do not have that high priest who is unable to sympathize. Jesus can sympathize. That word sympathize means to to be able to feel, um, to, to understand what you're going through. Do you, that word sympathize is, is the one thing that makes Jesus different between the pre-incarnate Jesus and his incarnation. You see, before Jesus became flesh, Psalm 103, remember Psalm 103, written before Jesus was, 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 was alive, says that God knows how we're made. He knows that we are but flesh, okay? So God knows we're sinners. God knows we face temptation. So Jesus knew that before he was human. But once he became human, he went from just knowing about to experiencing. Think about that for a moment. Before he was human, he never experienced temptation. He couldn't. But once he became flesh and everything about humanity he took on, now when he's walking and he's dwelling among the people, and he's living with you and me, and he's in the flesh. Now, all of a sudden, guess what he's starting to feel that he's never felt before? Beautiful woman walks by. What's he feeling? He's starting to see money. What's he feeling? 
When someone is telling him, you are the greatest thing ever, what's he feeling? What's, what's the temptation? Remember, even, and, and here's the thing. We, I, I sometimes wonder if people think, well, the only time Jesus was tempted with, was with the devil, and that was only three times. How many of you know that's just one instance? I mean, Jesus was tempted throughout his life in every way. So guess what? So Jesus now, because he, he gets it, he understands. And that's why Hebrews chapter 2 again says, because he suffered, he agonized, he felt the distress, he felt the weight of the temptation. He felt that he's able to help those who are being tempted. He gets it. And he's like, here's, he's like, now he's like, I want to offer help. I truly want to, because I get it. I understand where you're at. I was there. I felt it. I felt the weight of that temptation. I know what you're going through. I want to help you. Here's the problem. How many of us don't want help? Mm, I know we don't like to hear that one. Because sometimes if we're, if we're honest about it, because we know that the temptation is to only do one thing. It is to get us to sin. So if we, can, if we can overcome the temptation, we won't sin. But the problem is, sometimes we like our sin. Because we want to stay angry and unforgiving. Because I don't want this person ever to hurt me again. So you know what? So when I feel the anger toward that person, I'm just going to let it ride because I don't want to give them any in. We, we, we like the sin that temptation brings of lust. We, we like the idea of, like, I, I love spending money. So when I feel that, that greed, when I feel that, that covetousness, boy, I, I don't want to give in to that. I don't want to give that up. Man, I love, you see. Jesus says, I'll help you. But the question is, are you willing to take the help? Are you willing to go, I don't want this. I don't want to fall into this. Jesus, help me. I know you understand this temptation. You were tempted in every way I was. You get this temptation. Help me. But do you have the desire for that help? So the benefit, one benefit is that Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. Here's the second benefit. Jesus' humanity made it possible for us to stand righteous before God. His humanity makes it possible for you and I to stand righteous before God. So again, verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the one, as the only son from the Father. We've seen his glory. All right, now that word glory, let, let's kind of get an, a, an understanding of this word glory. You, when it talks about God's glory, and you read about the God's glory a lot you know, throughout the Bible, New Testament, Old Testament, you see God's glory repeated, God's glory, God's glory, God's glory. So let's kind of get an understanding. There's actually two, two facets of, of the glory of God. One is the glory of God is simply who he is. It's, it's, it's his intrinsic value. It's, it's all of his attributes. It's just, 
It's just who he is. It just the glory of God just radiates. Okay. So when you read that the whole earth is filled with the glory of God, what that just means is like, man, just the, the omnipresence of God is everywhere. His attributes, his 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 omniscience, his his just this is who God is, and He fills the earth. That's His glory. But there's another glory that is is where it, it's the literal presence of God in the midst of people. This is the glory that, that um, Moses prayed for in Exodus 33 when he was on, the, 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 on Mount Sinai, and he's like, God, show me your glory. And God's like, oh, Mo, you don't know what you're asking for. He goes, I'm going to show you, but I got to put you in this rock, and I got to put your face against the rock, and you can't see me. I'm going to pass by me, by you, and you can't see me. You see, this is the glory that, that Paul describes in 1 Timothy chapter 6 when he says that God is inapproachable light and no one can see him. Why? Because the glory, the, 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 the literal presence of God in our midst kills you. Because it's so brilliant. We can't see it. We can't face it. So when Moses is declaring, God, I want to see your glory, he really didn't know what he was talking about. Because God's like, Moses, if I show up, you will die in my presence. You can't see me and, and live. And so he had to hide Moses in the rock. This is the glory that when the tabernacle was finally built, and then Moses would go in and perform his duties, there were times where God's glory came down into that tabernacle, and it was so powerful, Moses couldn't even go into the tabernacle. Think about that for a moment. Imagine coming, pulling up to church, and there, this place is just glowing. And you're like, and you try to get in, you're like, I can't go in. Can't do it. Because the literal presence of God would be here. You see, that was happening in, in, in the temple. In 1 Kings chapter 8, it says, When the priests tried to perform their duties, the glory of God was so powerful, they couldn't do it. That would be like me and Dusty showing up on a Sunday morning, and we can't come into this place. He can't play. I can't preach. Why? Because the glory, the, the, the literal presence of God has just, boom, filled this place. And we know if we went in there, we would die. Tradition holds that when the priests would go into the Holy of Holies, it says they used to tie a rope onto them. And the reason is, is they would go into the Holy of Holies because that's where God really showed up. And the idea was like, man, if God shows up and you die, well, we're not coming in after you, dude. We're going to pull you out. You see, that's the glory of God, the literal presence of God. You see, when we... And churches today say, hey, we, we want to pray for the, man, the, 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 the manifestation of God's glory in our church. What we're saying is we just want more of the Spirit of God moving. Because I'm telling you, we could not have the literal glory of God in this place. Okay? I don't know if you all saw the, the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark when they opened up the, the Ark of the Covenant and that light was just shooting through and like, just killing people. That's the glory of God. Okay? That's what would happen if God's literal glory showed up in this place. There would be nothing left. So the glory we experience 
is just the Spirit of God moving and being here. So, but John says that they saw his glory. What does that mean that, wow, when Jesus shows up and he's walking, we're seeing his glory. Well, one, got to remember the book of John was written after Jesus' death. So one instance of them seeing, when he says we saw it, it could have been referring, John could have been referring to himself and James and Peter when they were up on the Mount of Transfiguration and, and like, you know, the cloud came down and they heard God speaking and then Jesus was glowing like a light bulb and they're like, whoo, this is awesome. That could have been what he was talking about or the we represents just people, the people of Israel. And when he talks about the glory of Jesus, probably threefold. One is the glory would be radiant. What, what the glory coming out of him would have been in his attributes, the miracles he performed. Because when we get to John chapter two and he's doing um, at the wedding of Canaan, and he turns the water into wine. In John chapter two, verse 11, it says that when he did that, he turned the water into wine. It says, this was the first of his signs Jesus did at the Canaan in Galilee and he manifested his glory. You see, he did a miracle. He turned water into wine. And when he did that, his glory was being manifested. People were like, oh my gosh. So when he raised somebody from the dead, when he give, gave sight to a blind person, and he, he allowed the, the mute to speak, and he, he, he raised the paralytic to walk, he was manifesting his glory. His power was coming out of him. The second way they probably saw his glory was his internal glory. And what I mean by internal glory is they saw something that people can't do. He saw him love in a way that they'd never seen before. They saw mercy, compassion, grace. He, they saw justice. They saw his omniscience. Because there were times where people were thinking, he's like, I know what you're thinking. He's, they saw that. And so they saw this internal glory, just his, like, they saw him treat people in a way that humans can't. And they saw this. But the third glory, I think, and I read this this week, and I'm like, that makes sense. And it's this, his moral glory. This is the benefit for you and me. His moral glory, meaning his holiness, his sinlessness. His disciples and the people saw him live completely sinless. Could you imagine being around someone who never sinned? I mean, we all think there are people like that, but um, no, they're not. They're still sinners, okay? No matter how holy they appear to be, they are still a sinner. Jesus walked around these people, dwelt with them, and they saw his holiness. They saw him not treat people like everybody else treated people. He saw him respond to people like nobody else responded. He saw how, they, how he treated, when, when a sinful temptation came his way, how he was able to go and not, not give in. They saw his sinlessness, the moral glory. And I believe that is the glory the benefit for you and me today because the sinlessness of Christ benefits you and me. And the question is, is how is this, how does Jesus' sinlessness benefit you and me? Well, you've got to understand what is sin in the first place. Sin is us, humanity, 
breaking the law of God. God set a standard. And God's like, oh, by the way, um, as a human, you've got to meet this standard perfectly. Not 90%, not 95%, not 99.9%. Perfect. You've got to meet my, my standard perfectly. Well, guess what humanity can't do? We're not measuring up. So when we disobey God, when we break God's law, guess what that makes us? A sinner. So we are now sinners, and the Bible teaches us that our sin separates us from God, breaks the relationship with God. Because of my sin, you and I don't. Guess without Christ, you don't have a relationship with God. You don't. Your relationship with God is broken. You're separated because of your sin. So Jesus, he shows up, God in the flesh, lives his life perfectly, sinless. The book of Romans tells us this. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. It says, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What that means is the law couldn't make people perfect. The law couldn't make you right with God. The law could not make you righteous. It couldn't get you justified. It was weak. And so Paul's like, that's what the, the, the law was weak and it was in the flesh. It couldn't do anything. And so here's what he says. So God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. There it is. In the likeness of sinful flesh. He was man tempted in every single way. So he was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And he condemned sin in his flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Okay? You see, Jesus, he sees the law of God, and he just starts going, check, 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 done, done, fulfilled, fulfilled, all the way through his life, to his death, done. And when he breathed his last breath, he accomplished the one thing that no human ever, ever, ever did. He fulfilled the law of God perfectly. And he became the perfect sacrifice for sin. He was that unblemished lamb. No defilement, no stain, no sin. So when he died, he became the perfect sacrifice for the sin of humanity. And when it says that he fulfilled, and when it says there that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, here's what happens. Here's the transaction that takes place. When you come to the place where you receive Christ, you see that I'm a sinner. I'm separated from God. I have no relationship with God. And you hear the truth. Jesus died for your sin. And if you will receive him by faith, he will forgive every one of your sins. And now you have a relationship with God. But the transaction that takes place is this. When you receive Christ as Savior, and your sin is forgiven positionally, not practically, because we're still messed up practically, positionally. The moment you receive Christ as your Savior positionally, you are perfect before God. Now, in our minds, we can't grasp that because anybody other than me still sin? In our minds, I'm like, I'm not perfect. I still blow it. Positionally, you Christ fulfilled the law perfectly. So the transaction that takes place is through faith in him that 
when he fulfilled the law, guess what? It is now completely fulfilled in you. Hard to grasp. I don't really understand it. But that transaction takes place. So that's why when you die, as Paul says, to be away from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. There is no pit stop. Okay, I know the Catholics say no, there's purgatory, and you gotta sometimes you gotta you gotta you gotta get warmed up still. You gotta there's some stuff that's got no. If you know Christ as as your savior, the righteous requirements of the law are fully fulfilled in you. You are completely right, you are made perfect in the sight of God through Christ. So when you die physically, your body goes into the grave, but your spirit is in the presence of God. Why? Because you have been, the righteous requirements of the law have been fulfilled in you through Christ. You see, that's why in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says that God made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, that's the moral glory, who knew no sin to be sin. He took your sin. So when he takes your sin and you take him by faith, it says he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we can become the righteousness of God. Man, that is great news that Jesus becomes flesh so I can become the righteousness of God. Here's the third thing. Jesus' humanity provides a continuous overflow of grace. It provides a continuous overflow of grace. So the word becomes flesh. We've seen his glory. He says, and he was full of grace and truth. Now I'm going to explain this here just, just a little bit more. But in verse 15, it says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this is the one whom I said, he was he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. He's just declaring the deity of Christ. He's like, yeah, he, he you know what? I became, I, I was before him in birth, but he was before me ever in, in eternity. But here's where I'm getting at now. Look at verse 16. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Notice it says, and from his fullness, what fullness? The fullness of what? Well, that goes back to verse 14. He was full of grace and truth. Full of it. Not partially. He was full of it. Full of grace, full of truth. And so let's look at the grace part. He says, and because of that fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now, in the, in the Greek, it, that, those words grace upon grace literally means grace for grace or grace in place of grace. So what that means is this is um, grace for, upon grace or grace for grace or grace in place of grace. It just means this. Um, when you think grace is running out, there's more grace. When you think that grace is running out, there's more grace. It's grace upon grace upon grace. Grace after grace after grace. You see, the thing is, grace never runs out. When you think there's going to be a void, grace fills the void. It is grace after grace after grace. And what, what, what this is telling us is that, listen... There is nothing in our lives. There's nothing that you can do, say, act, behave, nothing that can displace the grace of God. Nothing. Again, I know our, our, our Catholic friends will say, well, if I don't go to mass, I, I lose the grace of God. If I don't go to confession, I can lose the grace of God. No. Because it's grace upon grace upon grace. Grace after grace after grace. 
The moment I, see, that's the thing. The enemy wants to convince you and me, you've done too much. The enemy wants to conf- make you believe, um, no, no. You're too bad. You've sinned too much. You've done that one thing over and over and again. God's done. Here's the simple definition of grace. It's God giving you what you don't deserve. That's grace. And the thing that God gives grace is ultimately forgiveness. It's, it's the, the, just the outflow and the overflowing pouring out of the forgiveness of Christ. And it never runs out. So about the time, and I'm telling you, so many people, so many Christians are wrapped up in, in, in the, the code of shame because they have been taught so badly that if you're not getting it together, shape up or ship out, man. If you don't have your act together, man, God is just going to, he, he's just going to lose it on you. And so many people, I believe, go through life saying, I know God loves me. I know Jesus loves me. He died for me. But I don't measure up. Man, I, I, I fall so short. I, I, don't, I don't think he can forgive me. And that is a lie from the enemy so powerful. And so many Christians are shackled to shame. Because we think my sin's too much. And we sit around hating life, hating self because I've done too much. And John is saying, grace upon grace upon grace after grace after grace, forgiveness is poured out time after time after time. Hebrews, again, Hebrews chapter 4, 15. We already read this, but I, I want to read this as it links to verse 16. Hebrews 4, 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then verse 16 says this. Because, you know, so because we have this high priest, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. He sympathizes with our temptations because he was Verse 16 says this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. You see, let us approach not scared, not reluctant, not shame, no, with confidence. Jesus, I need your help again. In our time of need, do you want, what is your greatest need? And I'll tell you what your greatest need is, forgiveness. Your greatest need is not physical health. Your greatest need is not more money in the bank. Your greatest need is not even your marriage being fixed. The greatest need you have in your life is knowing I am forgiven in Christ. And when I keep blowing it, when I keep messing up, when I think my sin is too great, man, Jesus is, approach the throne of grace. It's almost like Jesus is saying, on this throne sits grace. And it's just going to flow. And it's just going to pour out. And you can have that confidence that that grace is there for you. In your greatest time of need, man, grace is there. And maybe you're here today. Maybe you're listening online and you just, you are shackled to shame. 
I'm telling you, I know what you're, I feel that in my life. Because I sit and go, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be perfect. And when I blow it, man, can I tell you, shackle of shame wraps around me so fast. And I've, I am scared and hesitant to go before God because the enemy's telling me, you blew it again. God's mad at you. God's angry at you. No, he's not. Jesus sitting there on the throne of grace saying, I want to be your whatever it is. I want to pour grace into your life. And so maybe you're shackled to shame and you need to come to that place where you got to be like, you know what? No more shame. And I'm going to get to the throne of grace and get the grace and the forgiveness. Okay, now, but notice John says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. I'm going to be honest. I labored over this point. I I didn't sleep last night at all, hardly. Because one thing I don't ever want to do is be a bully preacher. I, I, I... I was, here at the, I was here at the church about quarter to seven just struggling over this because I don't know how to preach this without landing in one of two camps. I, I, I prayed, I'm like, God, help me to divide this correctly. Help me to preach this point, grace and truth. Because Jesus was both. He walked in complete grace he, he hung out with the worst of the worst. Man, he hung out with tax collectors. Nobody liked to tax. People hated tax collectors. Not Jesus. He hung out with them. Went to dinner with them. He hung out with the prostitutes. He hung out with the worst of the worst while the religious teachers of the law were like, oh my gosh, they were so like flabbergasted. Why would he? Why? Why are you hanging out? And Jesus is like, look, these people need a doctor. They're sick. And man, I've come to heal them. Man, he, he, he administered compassion and grace and love and mercy time and time again. But here's what Jesus, so Jesus is looking at people and he's like, man, you're sick. Don't try to clean yourself up. Why don't you come to the doctor and I'll make you well. But here's what Jesus did though. When people would come He's like, come to the doctor. Don't try to heal yourself. You can't. Just come and I'll heal you. And once he, he offered them the grace and the forgiveness and they realized, wow, I, I, I'm going to be forgiven in this guy. Here's what he does. He goes, now I've healed you. Now let me teach you how to stay healthy. You see, that's the truth part. You see, Jesus, I think of the woman, and we're going to see this in John here in, here in a few chapters, the woman who was caught in adultery. Think about that. She was caught in adultery. Someone's spying on her, looking in the, some religious person. Oh, there's a woman committing adultery. I was spying on her in the window. I was the peeping Tom. Everybody grab your rocks. And they grab her out of the house, probably naked. She was caught in adultery. Not that they heard down the grape. She was in the act. So they probably grabbed her, ripped her out of the home, probably naked, threw her on the ground, and all the people grabbed the rocks because law says, hey, stone her, kill her. She's done. No grace, no mercy, nothing. Then Jesus shows up, and he's just like, listen, if you are without sin, throw the rock. I'll be there with you. Throw it. 
And no one could. Because everybody, when they're real, realizes I'm a sinner. And when everybody had left, he looked at the woman and he goes, has nobody condemned you? She's like, no. He's like, I don't condemn you either. But here's the thing. He didn't say, I don't condemn you and let her go and just let her go back to that life. He says, I don't condemn you. Oh, I love you. And I'm going to show you mercy and grace. Come here. I love you. But from now on, do not sin. Grace and truth. You know, Jesus in Matthew 11 says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Grace. Man, that's mercy. Grace upon grace upon grace. Come to me. Are you, are, you, are, you, are you fed up with all the rules and the regs? Are you fed up trying to get to God in your own strength? Forget it. Come to me. I want to show you mercy and grace. Grace, 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 grace. But in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Truth. Grace and truth. He was full of both. He did not land in one or the other. He was full of both. You see, here's the problem with the church, with Christians. The reality is we aren't full of both. We land in one or the other. Sometimes we're all grace. We, we just love people. It doesn't matter what you do. We don't care. And, and I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to say anything to you. I just, we just want to love you and just let the person continue in their sin and not say anything. We just, we just want to love. We just, we're just showing grace. But then you have people at youth camp. Man, they're bringing the hammer every single time. You've got the pastor sitting up here banging on the pulpit. you got to walk. you got to do. And, it's, and people are like, I don't want to go to church anymore. Because it's all truth, and it's all truth, and, and you shape up, and you do it right, and you act right, and it's all truth. Well, the problem is when it's all truth, it's abuse. When it's all grace, it's unloving. Because when it's all grace, I'm just going to let you continue in your sin. But grace, all truth is, you better not sin. In fact, I'm going to keep telling you what to not to do so you won't. we got to be both camps. We've got to love people right where they are. Man, as a church, I want people to come in who, like Jesus, I want, you know, and and Paula says this a lot, people were comfortable around Jesus. I want people, no matter what they are, look like they're sin. I want them comfortable in this church. I want them to comfortable around you. If they're sitting next to you and they're dressed in all black with piercings and and, and nose piercings and tongue piercings and tattoos on their forehead, would they feel comfortable sitting next to you? Or would you be like, screw down the chair, man? Or would you move in closer to them? See, that's grace. But we also want to teach the truth of God's word. To say, yeah, 
to get to Jesus. You don't have to do anything. But once you come, man, now let's work this thing out. That's what Paul says. Let's work out our salvation with fear and trembling. See, that's the truth part. So we got to be in both camps. We can't settle in one or the other. We got to be in both. Jesus was in both because he was full of both. See, that's why I love Romans chapter 5 and 6. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Paul just makes this great declaration. He says, when my sin abounds, anybody have sin abounding? Ah, oh, man, I hate when sin abounds. But he doesn't stop there. Now, remember, Paul, these weren't his words. He was still speaking the words of Christ because Jesus is the word. So when Paul is saying, he's writing, when sin abounds, man, guess what's right behind it? Grace is abounding even more. He goes, your sin can't get higher than God's grace. You think your sin's way up there? Well, God's grace is way up there. And no matter how high you think your sin is, the grace of God's going to cover that thing. No matter how massive you think your sin is, the grace of God is bigger. The grace of God is so great. But he doesn't end it there. Because in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, so what do we do? Do we just continue to sin and let it abound so grace can abound? He goes, no. He goes, how can we who believe in Jesus Christ continue to sin? You see, because the, the, the idea is, is that when you and I come to Christ and we understand what we have in Christ, we understand, wow, I am made perfect right now because of Jesus, and I'm righteous in God's eyes, and then the law has been fulfilled in me. Wow, I have this relationship with God. I've been forgiven of everything. I'm going to heaven. Out of that, you see, great grace has flowed in, and right on the heels of grace, guess what should be flowing in? Truth. So because of the grace, because of the mercy, wow, here's how I want to live. Grace and truth. Not one or the other, but both. Perfect in Jesus, not perfect in us. So guess what you and I have got to do? Strive for grace and truth and try to balance both. Number four, here's the fourth thing. The fourth benefit of Jesus' humanity is this. Jesus' humanity delivers us from wondering, have I done enough? He delivers us from wondering, have I done enough? So again, verse 16, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Christ. The law came through Moses. Now, the law, he would be talking about the Old Testament law. <coughs> and the law of God to Moses was, okay, um, you better do it or reap the consequences. It, it was all about warnings, judgment, and death. That's all it was, all right? There was no middle ground. Oh, you, 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 you messed up on a few points. That's okay. No, it was either you do it perfectly or we've got a problem. It was you do the law um, if you want to, if God's like, if you want my blessings, you got to do the law completely. If you want a relationship with me, you better do the law perfectly. And if you don't, 
you're going to reap the whirlwind. If you don't do this law perfectly, you and I got a problem. Our relationship's going to be broken. And how many of you know that would be kind of troubling to live by? Do you ever wonder if, if Jews in Jesus' time ever woke up in the morning and were like, I don't want to get out of bed. Shoot, I got to because I've, if I don't do something, I'm going to... I wonder if, if, if the Jews in Jesus' time ever wondered, am I doing enough? I wonder, I wonder if, if, if did, 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 I, did, I, did I do, did, did I, what did I do today and what did I not do today? I wonder if they like walked on eggshells hoping I don't break the law. Because if they broke the law, they could be cast out of the community if they broke the law, they could be stoned. They could be killed, ostracized. These people did not want. Jesus is like, you know what? I'm going to eliminate all that. Because through him came grace and truth. I think this is the other aspect of grace and truth that Jesus taught. Is this. Jesus began to teach people, oh, um, by the way, you keeping the law, it doesn't matter. It's not going to get you to God. You keeping the law... You're not going to get there. The law will not make you perfect. The law is not going to justify you. The law will not make you right. Do you want to know what's going to make you right? Me. And he taught the truth. He taught the truth of telling people, you can't earn it. You can't get to God. But if you will trust in me, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and you'll get to God. You see, that's why in the book of Titus, chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, it says this, it says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. I love that. When Jesus came and he was in the flesh, it was the goodness and loving kindness of God showing up. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, Jesus, is, he, he, he declared it then, and his word declares it now. You can't do enough to be right before God. But this is what we do. This is, here, here's two problems the church um, does. One problem, and, and this is not necessarily church. This is what people think. I can be good and I'll get to God. I, I can do kind things and I'll get to God. I, I can do righteous works and I'll get to God. People think if I do righteous deeds, I can get to God. So people think my salvation is found in my righteous acts. This is what I just do. If I'm just good, be kind to people, give, to, give generously, I'll get to God. And Jesus in his word says, no, you won't. That can't save you. But here's the problem in the church is we teach people, hey, you can't get saved in your own works. you got to trust in Jesus and have him only in faith. And people believe that. And they're like, yeah, you're right. And they, they receive Christ by faith. But here's what the church does. Okay, you receive Christ by faith, but if you want your relationship with God to continue, man, you better act right. And guess what we do? Not only do we, we're, we're like the Pharisees, the Pharisees in Jesus' time. Not only did they have the 613 laws of, of, God, of God's law, they added to it. Because they kept thinking, hey, if we can just keep bringing and, and, and keeping people in shape, man, we'll be okay. So guess what churches do? Not only do we say, oh, obey God's word perfectly, 
But then we say, oh, don't play cards. Don't go to movies. Women don't wear pants. Don't, 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 don't drink, don't chew. And guys, don't date girls who do. Because that's, we set these parameters up for people and think if you're not obeying God completely, your relationship with God will be broken. And Jesus teaches us that is not right. Grace and truth. We walk by grace and we know the truth that I can't do anything. I, out of the flow of the grace, I want to obey God. But when I mess up, God's not sitting there going, I am so ticked off at them again. No. When I blow it, guess what he's wanting to do? Grace upon grace upon grace. And then lastly, here's the fifth one. The fifth benefit is this. God's or Jesus' humanity explains to us who God is and what he is like. In verse 18, he says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Some of you may have a version that says, is at the Father's bosom. That is just really creating a, the, 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 an understanding that God the Father and God the Son had a very close, intimate relationship. But he says that Jesus has made him known, meaning God, God the Father, has made him known. When Jesus was alive, you know, people had this, this idea of who God was. And it was God on mountain, Mount Sinai. God comes down and it's thunder and, and, and bellowing and fire. And we got to be scared of that God. And let me ask you, have you ever talked to people and you ask them, hey, tell me who, what God's like? Do you ever get this answer? He's angry. He's wrathful, judgment. Because all they see is the God of an Old Testament. Jesus tried to tell people, hey, here's who God is. Tried to explain his kingdom. Tried to explain what he wanted to do. Explain he had a plan. Explain eternity to people. He wanted people to know the love of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God. Not just as God of wrath. Is he still a God of wrath? Absolutely. Is he still a God of justice? Absolutely. But we can't just sit there. And that's the people of his day. They sat there. That's the only God they knew. And he's sitting there going, man, the God, the Father, wants you to be able to cry out, Abba, Father. He wants you to understand that you have a relationship with me. You have this deep relationship with God, the Father. And he's a God that forgives and a God that is graceful and a God that is merciful, a God that is kind, a God that is good, a God that is gentle. And that's the God that he wants us to embrace. Why? The reason why we know God is like that, because Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. And so Jesus says, oh, just watch me what I do and you'll see God. So guess what? All we have to do is see Jesus. And when you and I know Jesus more and what he is like, we know what God the Father's like. Amen? Hey, why don't we all stand? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come humbly before you and just thank you for the love and the mercy and the grace you show us through Christ. We thank you that your word reveals who you are and what you're like. And Father, we thank you that 
that we can come to you in our sin, come to you in our brokenness. That Jesus, you understand, you have been tempted in every way and you can sympathize with us and you want to help us. And I thank you, Father. And even right now, this morning, maybe the, if there'd be anyone here who just needs to come to the throne of grace and just empty themselves before you. Lord, maybe there's people in here feeling shame and wrapped in those shackles. Help them to come to you and experience that grace poured into their heart. Help them experience that loving kindness, that forgiveness in a very real way. Jesus, or Father, you tell us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just, and you will forgive us and cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. And so I just pray that we could just be that to the day, this morning, confessing our sin, coming to you with our greatest need, and receiving that mercy from the throne of grace. We just thank you, Father, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.